0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: The Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored
0: by Williot. Scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth.
2: Welcome to the Mister Beacon podcast. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about how to be successful in asset tracking and how to be successful as a CTO. Now, I'm talking to a CTO now, Jim uh, Strategus, who is CTO at uh, Cognosos. So, Jim, thanks very much for joining us on the show.
1: Oh, Steve, thanks for
2: having me. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I you have a job that many people aspire to, uh, especially on the technical side, uh, but really being a CTO is quite a complicated uh, job. And you've been a CEO, you have uh, worked at Cisco and Motorola and AT&T. You've had a great uh, background to learn on. So uh, once we've uh, finished our uh, drill down into what your company does and how you're carving out your niche in asset tracking, I want to uh, get some career advice from you for anyone that wants to be a CTO and uh, we'll, we'll cover that but first of all tell us a bit about what your company does at a high level what's the kind of the elevator pitch
1: so we uh, provide an asset tracking service platform uh, using uh, some patented technology we developed uh, in conjunction with Georgia Tech Uh, in the area of low power wide area networking. So we have our own LPWA technology, and now we've combined that with our own location technology uh, to allow us to do So uh,
2: asset tracking and inventory, what typically are the things that you're tracking?
1: So our our largest uh, customer segment today is automotive. So we're tracking about 80,000 vehicles at uh, dealers, auctions, and automaker uh, plants. Uh, to give the, the owners and operators of those lots visibility as to where the vehicles are, where they've been, how long they've been there, uh, kind of the, the, all the logistics information you would want in an ideal world about you know what is very valuable inventory uh, while it's, while, before it's been sold. So uh, at an auto manufacturer, these are vehicles that are sitting on the lot before they're transported to dealers. And of course at dealers, they're waiting for a customer to buy them And then once you've uh, driven your car for a few years and turn it back in, it usually goes to an auto auction and the same kind of process occurs there. So we we give those uh, customers the visibility in in as to where their inventory is.
2: And um, you've got some good names on your website. You're in Atlanta. So that's uh, home of uh, Cox Automotive. Are they one of your customers?
1: Uh, yes, they are a customer as well as an investor, and uh, we also have uh, some large automotive customers. Uh, Hyundai uh, Glovis is one of our customers. They're the logistics arm of uh, the Hyundai and Kia, the automakers, and we're uh, serving their uh, plants in Georgia and Alabama with our service. And then a lot of the you know uh, companies that are in the independent auction uh, world, uh, companies like uh, Dealers Auto Auctions uh, uh, up in Spokane, Washington, they're one of the largest independent auto dealers in the country with probably five or 6,000 vehicles in inventory. So it's pretty much across the board in the auto industry of anybody that needs to know where their cars are, not while they're driving down the highway, but you know while they're sitting in, in the big parking lots.
2: Yeah, it seems to be uh, it's a high value item, and uh, so I can see why uh, tracking those assets would be important. But why create your own LP WAN technology? Are we short of LP WAN technologies, or uh...
1: well, good question. Uh, We we got our start, you know, before Sigfox and before LoRa, so we're you know probably uh, within a year or so of all uh, three companies coming out with their respective technologies and. You know, we have a lot different spin on it, I guess, if you say because we're based upon software-defined radio technology. And what that does is gives us the, all the cost advantages and range advantages of, of any LPWA technology, but we're not locked into any particular silicon. So we can use silicon radio devices from, you know, as you know, any number of dozens of companies around the world and go where we get the most cost-effective effect, cost solution for a particular use case. So, uh, a lot of our products we use the same chips that are, you know, used in your key fob, and so instead of being able limited to say a range of, you know, a few tens of meters, we get a few kilometers out of the same chip just with a different modulation scheme and using software defined radio in the cloud to sort out the good signals from the bad signals and make the link better.
2: Okay, so you're getting great range. You don't have to pay royalties to uh, Semtech who create uh, LoRa and you get to use commodity chips, but you get that additional range. Um, And, you know, why do you need the longer range? Uh, Because Bluetooth has pretty good range, doesn't it?
1: It does, especially, you know, Bluetooth uh, LE and the Bluetooth 5.1 long range profile. But we do even better, so we get, you know, several kilometers of range, and the, the it's it's, it's a simple equation of cost of the infrastructure. So one of our gateways with a radius of, uh, of you know, several kilometers can cover very large outdoor areas. For example, at, at one of the large automakers, uh, the plant's over 600 acres, and we cover that entire facility with three gateways with a high degree of redundancy. So. Uh, uh to be true probably one gateway would cover it but we put up three just to give uh, overlapping coverage areas make sure there're no uh, dead zones and to handle the capacity of the of the vehicles at that lot they have over 20,000 cars so you got to have a lot of network capacity to handle all the information that the tags are transmitting
2: wow that's amazing 20,000 so um how do you squeeze so this is a commodity chip uh how can you get that range for someone that's not kind of familiar with different modulation techniques uh you know what are the trade offs if you want to get that extra range uh, i'm I'm assuming that it's it's not a free ride
1: there's yeah there's there's laws of physics which we'd all like to to violate if you're you know on the star Tra- starship enterprise we could right but so laws of physics pretty much dictate that the range of a wireless network is inversely proportional to the data rate, right? We found that out in the Bluetooth world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use very low data rate transmissions, generally below one kilobit per second. And that's okay because the amount of information that are being sent in these networks is quite small. You know, a few hundred bytes a day of location information or status or temperature, you know, the typical kind of IoT use case. And then the other way we get greater ranges, we, we eliminate largely this effect that's called multipath, uh, where, uh, you know, in the real world, obstructions in pavement and buildings cause multiple copies of a wireless signal to arrive at the receiver. And by using the software-defined radio technology and our cloud signal processing, we can kind of sort out the good signals from the bad signals and uh, increase the range by doing that. So the kind of a combination of using low data rates, we have a very advanced forward error, forward error correction code, and using the cloud signal processing to eliminate the multipath noise. Oh,
2: uh, fascinating. So you've used this term "software-defined radios" a few times. Um, can you explain what that means? Well, instead of
1: using silicon, uh, like you're, you know, in Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and, and LTE, where there's silicon on each end of the link, right? The silicon in our laptops and our phones, and there's silicon in the access points. That implement a particular protocol like Bluetooth, we we implement our protocol in silicon in the tags, but in the gateways we use just a general-purpose computer and essentially a a fast A to D converter to sample the spectrum, and then we use software to implement the protocol. To implement the physical modulation, encoding, and, and and packetization is all done in software, so the. It provides a great deal of flexibility rather than uh, being forced to say, look at that signal in real time as you would in a chip and decide whether the packet was good or not. We can take our time and we can also throw additional processing power by using the cloud to uh, sort the signals from the noise and thus improve the range. So it's, it's quite a clever technique and it's quite flexible technology. Also from a frequency standpoint. We, by changing a few parameters in the gateway code, we can operate at 400 megahertz or 900 megahertz or even at 2.4 gigahertz.
2: And, and what uh, affects your decision about why would you want to have that flexibility? Why change to these different frequencies?
1: Well, in an ideal world, what the RF engineer would like to do is have a completely clean slate when they design a network. So if you give them a scenario, let's say, you know, monitoring location information from thousands of vehicles spread over... You know, a few kilometers. They would, um, you know, start with a blank slate, look at the frequencies that were available, and pick the most uh, fitting frequency for the application. And if you do that, you generally will pick frequencies b- below the typical license-free bands at 900 megahertz and 2.4 gigahertz, because lower frequency signals are able to penetrate buildings better. They don't reflect as strongly from objects, so you get greater range simply by operating at lower frequencies. So that's the reason we pick, for example, 400 megahertz for outdoor applications, but use 900 megahertz and 2.4 gigahertz for indoor applications.
2: Okay, makes sense. And um, tell us a bit about the use cases. Why are uh, these car dealerships trying to, uh, um, uh, implementing your systems? Is it, is it simply a uh, you know, a lot of cars, 20,000 cars, difficult to keep track of them. What's, uh, what, what are the business drivers and where's the ROI for all of this?
1: So, yeah, it's a good question. It comes in two forms. One is cost savings. So in order to dispatch a driver to retrieve a vehicle for sale or transport, for example, or to send it to the auctioneer with a gavel who auctions it at, a, uh, at an auto auction, someone has to go find the car and drive it. And uh, before we came along, the kind of the incumbent technology was barcodes. And the lot personnel would scan every car on the lot, maybe more than once a day, but at least once a day, and then record its location either as GPS coordinates or as, you know, just uh, row A, spot four uh, on a map. And, you know, by putting the tracking device in the car, you no longer have to do that. So it saves time. Uh, it saves the, the labor cost of uh, the, the personnel who are doing the scanning. It makes retrieving cars faster so you can be more responsive to your customer. Uh, and then you get faster inventory turns because if you're, ultimately your job is to get those cars off the lot, right? They need to be sold or they need to be shipped to a dealer if you're an automaker. And the more rapidly you can locate the cars for transport, the, the, the less time they spend on the lot and the, and the greater the uh, ROI.
2: So um, I I can see how your long range would definitely allow you to cast a broad net and see where uh, that that, that a car is there. Uh, But don't you lose something in terms of the the locality? It's it's like, uh, you know, if I have a very short range, then I have to have a lot of infrastructure. But I can get a pretty granular view of where things are. Is that a, a trade-off that's real or, or, or is just knowing that it's on the lot good enough?
1: No, we actually uh, use GPS technology outdoors, usually within two or three meters. So uh, but it's an interesting question because it gets into the whole beacon area as well. So, you know, when do you use beacons for location? When do you use other technologies? And what we found is we had to use a combination of both. So you know, GPS works great when the car is outside, but what happens when it goes in a building, which yes. they often do, yes. uh, GPS is pretty useless under a metal roof. So then we use beacons to okay. uh, give us an approximate location of the vehicle. We know what door it went in or what door it went out of because we can detect the proximity of a beacon.
2: Okay, so what are you actually putting in the car then? It's what do the, the, uh, the tags look like that you're, um, that you are creating? Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> so
1: I brought some show and tell. So this is a typical uh, automotive tracker, I think you can see it on the camera. Yeah. Um, it's This particular model is designed to clip to the visor of a car. Yes. So you just, like a garage door opener, yeah. and it's, it's quite simple really. It uses a motion detector to detect when the car is moving. Mm-hmm. It has a GPS chip to pick up the uh, GPS satellites, and then a UHF transmitter chip to transmit that information back. Uh, into the cloud when, when the car ceases motion. So its, it's, it's life is spent most of his life is spent asleep mm-hmm. <laughs> until it's called on to do something by the motion of the vehicle.
2: And how, how long will the battery in that last?
1: So depending on the number of, and the type of batteries, anywhere from one to four years, depending upon the particular use case and also dependent upon the number of times a day the car moves
2: and obviously they get recycled and used on multiple cars and Uh, and, and, and roughly how much what's the ballpark in terms of the cost so uh
1: we're kind of unusual in the the asset tracking business we don't sell anything Ah. so we actually provide the all the hardware all the infrastructure and all the applications uh as a SaaS business model for a subscription fee of a few dollars per month per vehicle you know the more vehicles you have the the lower it is, and the fewer, the higher it is, as it would be any case with a with a SaaS uh, business model. So it's kind of an interesting value proposition for us as a company and for our investors. And it, obviously, it it gives an impetus for the engineering team to always looking at ways to reduce the cost of this device yeah. because obviously that improves our bottom line and our customers' bottom line. Yeah, I'll, I'll show you the other the other side of the the uh, the product line. That's a, a beacon-based tracking device. I'll turn it right side up, and you can see that on the website but this is designed for tracking in a hospital. Oh. So it can't use GPS, so it actually uses beacon localization.
2: Okay, and so you're doing um, uh, trilateration to uh, do that, or just RSSI, or?
1: It's actually a, 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 an RSI, RSSI-based technique that uses the fingerprint of the space oh. uh, to locate the, the beacon. It, it actually, or locate the tag. The tag listens for beacons, and we use beacons Uh, as you know our indoor gps if you will
2: okay and um uh so are you using your um gateways uh with that or okay same gateway
1: technology just at a different frequency and they're put in you know wiring closets instead of outdoors on light poles
2: and what are the assets that typically people are looking to track
1: so this goes back to the old RTLS definition you know that that, that acronym came out of healthcare uh, in the early days of uh, of RTLS in hospital. So that's the market that we're addressing with this particular product is healthcare. But you know the same core technology maybe with a different form factor and perhaps a different battery could be used to locate pallets in a warehouse or anything that needs to be that's valuable and moves and need to be located, right? All
2: right. Um, and uh, are you do, using the same SAS model uh, as uh, with the cars? Yes, we are. All right. Yeah. Uh, presumably slightly lower cost, or uh, yes, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Obviously smaller form factor. It doesn't use GPS, so it's a little bit less expensive to manufacture. But uh, yeah, we, you know, I think it's it's a, it's a real need within multiple industries uh, these days to locate things indoors, and you know, beacons are great uh, for proximity localization. If you walk by uh, uh, something with a beacon on it, you know it immediately with a smartphone. But if you don't have a smartphone, uh, you have need other ways of uh, using beacons to locate objects um, in, in, in X, Y, and Z.
2: So SaaS is the, it's the fashionable thing. If you want a good valuation, then you, you have a SaaS business model. So uh, have you always done it that way or was there a transition to that no, we, we
1: started out that way. You know, I'm, a, as you know, an electrical engineer and been through many startups, and every startup made something that was hard, right, <laughs> that you had to go sell. And as you know, when you either make chips or make, you know, devices that have chips in them, you're always looking at your gross margin and what the price points are and the competitor's price points. And then you sell the product, and then you kind of say, you sit back and say, oh, I'm done. That customer is happy, and, and we can go on to the next thing. So we, you know, I guess because we'd done that before, and because some of my partners are very experienced SaaS software you know, leaders, uh, we decided to give it a try, even though there's hardware in our in our product, obviously, to, to develop a pure SaaS business model from day one.
2: And how how did the company get founded? What was the what's the founding story?
1: So I guess I was the first guy to to wake up and say, you know, I think this technology that we had worked on with at George tech was was interesting and uh, we filed some patents and and darn if the patents didn't get issued and so I, I, I looked at you know where I was and I was actually retired at the time and what I could do with the technology and and I thought it would be worthwhile to to pursue you know you know commercial interest for the technology so I mm-hmm. uh, ran into you know some friends of mine who said Jim what do you not know? goes in the hallway. Next thing I know, they say, well, you know, we could do this and go after this business and this application. And, and, you know, we started a company based upon those early conversations.
2: So I have to apologize to the listeners and viewers. This uh, connection is a little choppy. We've been struggling a bit, but I wanted to have the conversation. So uh, I hope everyone bears with us. Um, Williot's about to move to new offices. And so I'm optimistic that we've got a super fast uh, connection and we'll have uh, uh, less less choppy conversations. But I think we... we uh, We got the gist of what you were saying there, Jim. Um, uh, Maybe uh, maybe we can digress into this whole CTO thing. I've often, as a manager, and sometimes I've managed business people, sometimes technical people, and often when I speak to the technical people, the question is, well, what do you want to do eventually in your career? And quite often they want to be a CTO, and. um, so I'm interested in your story about, uh, you know, is it is it really as good a job as it's cracked up to be? Is it uh, should people <laughs> be aspiring to be CTO?
1: Yeah, it's, it, you know, obviously depends on your personal situation and where you are in your career. I, I'm a little unusual in, in that uh, I'm an old CTO. Uh, I didn't I didn't actually have that title until I was in my 60s. So uh, I've had all the other titles. Pretty much, and uh, I'd, I'd have to say, it just in perspective, I like this one the best. Okay, uh, it's you know partly because you know my name were, was on the original patents, it was kind of natural for me to assume that role. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more we grew the company and had customers and investors, the more I liked the what that the the role in, in, entails, which is you know providing the strategic direction of the company's technology, especially around intellectual property. I spent a lot of of the early days of the company obviously uh, working with the, on the patents and making sure that our IP was well protected and then look at product architectures you know, not just for next year but the year after so yeah it's it's a fun gig uh, and um, I, I envy the younger guys that just go and, and and get involved with startups and take on the role of CTO at a young age I think it's uh, it's 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 good to have worn different hats and and the CTO role is uh, can be quite fulfilling
2: and I see I see CTOs kind of in two varieties. One is where they're kind of the intellectual leader, the 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 one driving uh, IP and architecture, and one where they're doing maybe doing that, and they're very kind of engineering development focused. Do you are you responsible for the development of the product?
1: So yeah, I, I kind of wear both hats. I've got a real senior engineering team. You know, we we assemble the company from. Uh, folks that have worked together over the years in multiple startups. So, you know, uh, unlike most of the Silicon Valley startups, our average age is probably in the grayer level. So, a lot of guys with 10, 20 years experience. So, fortunately, I've got a. There's a lot of a strength in the team to manage the day-to-day stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I get to be involved. We're only 20 employees, so it's a, we're still a small company. Get to wear both hats. So when some days I do strategy, and some days I dive into the firmware or hardware issues uh, involving the product releases and, and uh, you know, future product development.
2: And, you know, what uh, advice would you give to someone who's an aspiring CTO in terms of the skill set that they acquire? I, I have often looked at this role as re- needing, uh, you know, business acumen as well as technology skills, because you've got to Hold your own in the executive team, and frequently you're involved in uh, helping to engage new partners and uh, and customers, and articulating and forming a a, a a technology roadmap that's not just driven by what's cool and what will work well, but what's actually going to allow the company to be successful. Can you? So maybe um, either contradict, amplify, give your take on this balance between the different skills required to to be a CTO.
1: Well, yes, you're absolutely right. Certainly, in a company that is dependent upon you know hardware technology as part of our our platform, um, you better be familiar with spreadsheets and ROI and uh, and and being able to contribute to formulating the company's business models based upon. The technology roadmap that you lay out, right? It can't be done uh, independent of cost, and uh, I think that's the the challenging and exciting uh, aspect of the job. Is it's it's fun to always be challenged to drive down the cost of functionality in in wireless technology. I know you guys are familiar with that at, at, at Willyot. So yeah, it's um, it, it, it it strains the the brain cells when your you know CEO or CFO says, you know that widget that we buy for you know, ten dollars a day. When do you think it'll be a dollar? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I like that challenge. You know, how much time do we have, and how much money you're willing to spend to, to drop to, to lower the cost by a factor of ten? That's a great challenge that engineers love to to dive into. So, yeah, I think the business side of being a CTO is essential. I don't think you can kind of jump into it right out of engineering school. For example, uh, having been involved with selling a product and uh, making a business case. So developing a business plan for a product, I think that kind of goes with the territory.
2: Interesting. And then what about that other dynamic, which is you're a leader. How hands-on should you be if you're the CTO? <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm a bad case of that because I'm an inveterate tinkerer and 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 maker. Uh, didn't know what the term was when I was, you know, a young engineer, but now I'm an older engineer. I I, I love the whole maker and and hacker movement. So. Uh, I sometimes need to be dragged off the bench to do other things. Uh, given, left my own devices, I'll be out there with a soldering iron and a spectrum analyzer and making measurements or coming up with new modulation techniques or, or uh, exercising new test equipment. That's another thing that us older engineers like to do is go out and acquire some fancy new pieces of equipment and show the young guys how wonderful it is and how you're supporting their, their engineering efforts.
2: Excellent, very good. Well, that's fascinating. Thanks very much, Jim. I, I uh, enjoyed hearing a bit about what you guys uh, are doing at uh, Cognosos, and uh, uh, hopefully, uh, I think I've learned a bit uh, through our conversation about uh, LP WAN and software-defined radios. And uh, the the business model is uh, is really cool that you guys are ex- executing too. And uh, thanks for your perspective on um, um, on on the career thing as well and how to be a CTO. So. Uh, Um, Appreciate your time.
1: Yes, Steve. No, thanks for having me as a guest. And I'd encourage, you know, listeners, obviously, to check out our website. And we have new products that, of course, Bluetooth based for indoor locations. So I'd encourage all your listeners to uh, check that out. And obviously, if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out.
2: Thanks a lot. Have you been able to give some thought to the three tracks that you might take on a trip to Mars, Jim?
1: Yes, it's it's this really limiting. I, I was thinking three albums maybe, but when you when you try to distill it down to three tracks, it really forces you to think. And so I kind of went through my uh, iTunes library and looked at the songs that I I play routinely, and you know tried to pick different genres. So I picked three songs, and we'll see how they go. So so the first one is uh, Miles Davis All Blues uh, from the uh, Kind of Blue album. I'm sure, you probably have heard the song. It's just just a great song. Plus, it's over eleven minutes, so for those long Mars nights, <laughs> at least yeah. it give you uh, some extra listening time.
2: That is a great then, album. Uh, That's a great album. Yeah, I love of course you've got to have
1: something for the Beatles. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, hard to pick one, but I guess if I had to pick one, it'd be Yesterday.
2: Yes. And,
1: and then uh, something a little more modern, but not too modern uh, in, in in terms of rock and roll. So there's a local band here in in the States, uh, in Georgia, you probably never heard of, called the B-52s?
2: Oh, I, I actually have heard of them, <laughs> as you might have guessed. And I've seen them as well. They were in San Diego last oh, year. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: so they have a kind of a apocryphal song, Rock Lobster, <laughs> which anytime I turn on the radio, my wife and I both, you know, start the toe tapping. And, and uh, it's really just a, just a great, you know, uh, fast-moving song. song gets, gets the blood going.
2: Fantastic. And going back to the Beatles and yesterday, is there? Does it evoke a time in your life, or is there? Obviously, who can argue with the Beatles? But is there something personal about the Beatles that resonates with you?
1: You know, it was a period, right? So I grew up in the '60s, and um, and the Beatles were on the radio. And I remember, you know, being when they the first time they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, and uh, I was, gosh, probably 10 or 11 years old. And I got out a little cheap uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder and set it on the TV set and hung the microphone in front of the speakers so I could record uh, their appearance on Ed Sullivan show. And I remember my grandmother being in the room and, you know, shaking her head like an older person back then would have done, you know, these, you know, what are these long haired kids <laughs> thinking about? It's awful. And I said, I remember saying, Grandma, they'll be famous one day. And I, I wish I still had that tape, but it's it's long gone.
2: Fantastic. And that's probably the best thing she could have said to pique your interest anyway. Very good. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Well, uh, thanks very much for that.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because rust new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything.